I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat. But that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 52 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. I am Matt Cohan, and I am joined, as always, by my main man, Arthur Cade. Today, we have one behemoth of an episode as we invite on pro wrestler in AEW, new star, Mr. Christian Cage, and one of the best sports broadcasters alive today, Mr. Mike Golick. Great episode, Arthur. Two legends, my man. Two legends. Golick, obviously, fantastic football player. He is the definition of endless hustle, and he was one of the pioneers of athletes moving to a successful next step of their career. Obviously, Mike and Mike became the radio institution of morning radio for everybody, and they essentially opened the, the blueprint for all athletes to move into what we're now seeing with the podcast arena, the radio arena, the television arena. Golik was the man and did it for so many years. He recently signed off. We talked to him all about it, but the dude is an absolute icon and legend in that world. And Matt, we got into everything with him, and the guy couldn't have been more authentic, real, and honest, both about his career and about the very much talked about departure and end of Mike and Mike, and also what's next for him. Christian Cage, most people will remember Edge and Christian, arguably the greatest WWE tag team of all time. Christian was forced to leave wrestling, took a seven-year hiatus due to concussions, and now he's back, as you had mentioned, with All Elite Wrestling as Christian Cage. Exciting stuff, man. Christian talked to us all about his iconic career, what it was like returning to the ring. I thought we got into it all with both of these guys, and I think everyone is going to be super happy with both of these chats. Yeah, and also Christian, you know, he's one of the most respected wrestlers. I mean, everybody we talked to, CM Punk, we talked to Darby Allen. everyone holds this guy as kind of the poster child for how to be professional, how to go about your career. He didn't ruffle really any feathers, and he's revered by everyone who's met him. So I think that comes through in the interview, so... Let's pump it out already. All right. First up, we're chatting with the incomparable Mike Golick. Enjoy. Thrilling day on the Endless Hustle as we invite on former NFL lineman turned legendary broadcaster Mike Golick Sr. Mike, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. You know, it, it's nice to be introduced occasionally as a football player uh, first because I think over the years, the younger generation who, whenever I see them, are always like, hey, man, I watched you in grade school all the way till college. Like, shit. Okay, they didn't even know I played football. So it's, uh, it, it's nice to uh, be reminded every now and then. Well, that's almost the biggest compliment you can get because you've had such an equally astonishing career as a radio host and broadcaster. So the mere fact that the kids don't know you as a football player, I think, is more of a compliment than a detriment. That's a good way to look at it. That is always looking at the positive. I like that. Oh, yeah. You know, me and Arthur obviously are big fans of yours. You know, anybody in the sports industry is. But how have you been filling your time as of recently? You haven't been as ubiquitous on the airwaves. Yeah, you know, I, I did a, do a lot of interviews and podcasts, especially around the Super Bowl time. And, 
And even my wife said at that point, she said, man, she said, you need to get back into it because it sounds like you miss it. I, I'm, I'm in my, so I finished in the Fiesta Bowl. That was January 2nd. So January, February, March, I'm in my fourth month of not doing anything. And it feels like four years, quite honestly. So uh, I definitely have some things that, that will be happening probably this month. I don't know if I want to get back into the daily routine. We'll see. Maybe morning drive. I'm not sure. You know, 25 years of 415 was uh, uh, interesting, but maybe I will because uh, I love it. And listen, the truth be told, I'd still be doing the show because uh, I'd love to still be doing the show, but that wasn't my choice. So you know, we, uh, we we moved out of our house in Connecticut, and uh, so I, I kept my filled time with that. The biggest thing probably is what 7.30 looks like to wake up to, because that's been stunning. Uh, that's an extra over three hours of sleep I've been getting. So when I get jumped back into this, it's going to be weird if I, I need to make sure I keep my sleep. Welcome to the club, brother, the 7.30 yeah. club. You know, feel, feel great. It's awesome. So, Mike, when you leave the, sh the show, and obviously it became arguably the most iconic show in morning sports history, are other networks coming at you at that moment? Are you being recruited immediately, or is it like, I need a break? Well, yeah, they, they, they were, and I was like, you know, I need, I need a little break. I need to figure out, you know, what I want to do. As my agent told me when, when the whole thing ended, he said, listen, you have a choice. You can do nothing and just ride off into the sunset. You can, you know, do some things or you can jump back into it full go again. And he said, that's what you need to decide what you want to do. And that's kind of where I am. So I kind of, you know, put everything on hold once I was done with the, uh, the bowl game and doing stuff around the Super Bowl, uh, just to kind of see what I want to do. You know, there's daily shows, there's podcasts, there's TV shows. I'm actually, I, I, the ink isn't dry yet, but I may be doing something completely outside the world of sports as one of the things I'm doing. And if that happens, it'll be a lot of fun. That That's the one thing that not being tied to one company has done. It's kind of given me the, uh, the ability to look around and maybe do multiple things, you know, kind of do all the things that I wanted to do. No, I wanted to do the morning show. I wanted, I wanted to do games. I wanted to, to do all the things I did at ESPN, but, but now there's the bad side of, of somebody saying they don't want you anymore, which is always a tough blow to the ego. And then there's the positive side of saying, OK, I'm going to have choices. Now I, I can decide what I want to do. You know, it's not so much a money situation, though. That's always nice, too, as it is. What do I really want to do? Because I've been, you know, grinding for the last, you know, 20 grinding. Grinding's a really a relative term. I don't want people to hear that and go, oh, yeah, you've been really working hard. You're absolutely right. It, it ain't digging a ditch. It's not tough physical labor. We all know that. It's still hard work, Mike. And, you know, getting up at that time for 25 years, and, and it, was, it was a lot that went into it, and I enjoyed my time. And, and like I said, I wish I was still doing it. But now I kind of need to, to decide which direction I want to go. One thing I know for sure is college and or pro games will be involved. Uh, I'll definitely be calling those. I love doing that. That's like my first love. So I'll definitely be doing that. So what is that conversation like? Do the executives pull you into the office and break the bad news? Do you see it coming? How does that all work? Well, uh, the first time um, when Mike and Mike ended, uh, the, the president of ESPN did pull me in the office. And he was the only one who actually spoke to me face to face about it and, and said, you know, we're going to make a change. And, and I didn't agree with it, uh, just like 
I've always equated it to um, I got cut twice in football, once from the Houston Oilers and once from the Miami Dolphins. Now, neither time I agreed with it, you know, but the coaches didn't give a damn, you know, uh, no, no player thinks they should be cut. So I equated it to that. I didn't think that the Mike and Mike should have ended, but this, this president did. So and it's his call. He's running the company. He's allowed to make that. So I told him I disagreed. We, we had our discussion, but then it went on to, to me with Trey Wingo and my son, Mike, which, you know, it was a really a fun three years. And then unfortunately the second time it ended, it, it didn't really, you know, nobody really told me anything face to face. I got kind of told after the fact a little bit, it, it wasn't, it wasn't very neat and tidy. Um, again, it's their, their choice to do it the way they want, right? It, it's up to them. It's their network. It's their show. So they can choose to uh, end it, you know, whenever they want and however they want. And, uh, you know, I just have to kind of follow along. From the outside, ESPN can kind of seem a little homogenized, very corporate. And I know you're kind of a, you're a guy who can do a lot of things. Did, is that ever... Is it appealing for you now that you've kind of broken out of that box in a sense is to do other things that maybe wouldn't be, um, I don't know, validated by ESPN? Well, I mean, the, the one thing I will say on two sides of this is I was never told what to say, you know, so many times, you know, and that was probably one of the biggest things of my time starting, you know, in 1998 with Tony Bruno before Greeny, before Trey and my son is the evolution of Twitter where, you know, all of a sudden it's like people, oh yeah, you have to say this or telling you, we were never told to say anything. They were all our opinions, but you know what you do at ESPN because it is a monster company with a lot of different tentacles and we're the, we were the morning show. You do a lot of promotion for other shows as well, uh, and w- w- which is fine, but, but you, do, you do spend a lot of time doing that, promoting others. But, you know, as far as what I had to do and what I had to say in my opinions, I was never told uh, anything about that, but you also know who you're working for. You're working for Disney, you know, you're working for ESPN, but you're working for Disney and you have to know their parameters as well. And, and you have to understand that. Listen, if you don't, if you want to go outside the box then you go, go find somewhere else to work. So I understood where I was and where I could go, but I was really a never, never across the line kind of guy. They used to, they would call green and I show the everyman show kind of the safe show. And it was fine. You know, we were going to include our families. That was whether it was with Bruno or, or Greeny or Trey and my son, obviously. We were going to include our families. We weren't going to hit the R button at all. That, that's not who we were, and it's not who we wanted to be. So that was never really an issue. But like I said, now there is more things to try and do that, that I wouldn't have been able to do while I was with ESPN. I always, you know, preface that by saying I'd rather still be doing the show now. I wish it did that. But you know, it did. So you look at other opportunities out there and there are some things that I wouldn't have been able to do while I was at ESPN that are, that are on the horizon, which I think will be fun. Mike, one of the things that I think made you guys so appealing and you kind of just touched on it was this every man appeal. But I also think there was an authenticity that came with you and Greeny where now we're, we see the shticks that are happening with so many of these people. And Skip Bayless is a great example where it's just almost like a shtick on who, who can I piss off to go viral? Was there ever thoughts in your head? Hey, I have to be a little sticky to get noticed. No, not at all. You know, it, it's amazing is whether again, it was with, and I know most of the years were with Greeny. I get it. And, and even all the other hosts that I had, the one thing that I always did, and I actually told this to my son and, and 
it's going to sound the most cliche-ish thing ever. But, you know, we're, we're, we're so much of this old school, new school stuff and this generation as opposed to the older generation that, you know, we're on, my, on the porch yelling, get off my lawn and blah, blah, blah. There are some things that hold true. And one of the things that holds true, I believe, is, and it's very simple, is be yourself. You know, when I talk to kids at school, when I talk to other guy, people that want men and women who want to become broadcasters, that's one of the first things I say. I said, I had to flip on a microphone at six o'clock every morning, even before ESPN, I was doing morning drive in, in Phoenix. So I had to flip on a microphone. It was a four hour show then. It was a four hour show at ESPN for 20 some odd years. If I tried to be something else, or if I tried a shtick, A, it would get old and B, people would get sick of it. And that, that only has so much of a shelf life. So I knew I had to be who I was. I knew some people would like it and some people wouldn't. And then I know everything is based on ratings and obviously the advertising and what they can sell and blah, blah, you know, the business side of it. But I've always lived by that. I was never a screamer. I was never a take one side just to take a side. And listen, if people choose to do it that way and they get people to watch and or listen and it works for them, so be it. That, that's fine. Everybody is different on how they approach this. All I can tell you is my way. And that was always just be myself, be authentic and, you know, have fun. My thought in morning radio, I guess it was any day part, but I never worked any other day part would be if you can drive to work, which a lot of people, you know, can be a drudgery early in the morning. And I can have you maybe learn a little bit. That's the one thing I always told Mike, because I, I worked with one other athlete, you know, Trey wasn't, Greeny wasn't, you know, Bruno wasn't, Mike was, is, and I always told him and I, and, and I hold this to the booth as well is take people where they can't go. 99% of the country can't go into the huddle or into the locker room of major college sports or the NFL or any pro team. So we know the mentality of the athlete. So it didn't matter what sport. So take people where they can't go and make them laugh a little bit. And if I did those two things every day, I, I felt pretty good about it. One of the best compliments I think I got, and one of the things that grew during, especially Greeny and I's time, was women viewership. And we were happy about that. You know, and, and we like to hear when we went on the road, they would say, listen, it feels good to be able to drive our kids to school and not have to have our hand on the button to change it if you're going to get blue or if you're going to cross a line. We weren't going to do that. So it was, and, and as, as I said, some people said maybe it was too nice of a show. I don't give a damn what people thought. It was a way I did it. And for whatever you know amount of time, it seemed to work. I want to talk about that last day because that was incredible to see your family there and the just genuine emotion. You could feel that through a TV screen. What was that last day like for you? So that was interesting because the last four months, you know, it started March 16th, you know, when, when, when COVID changed everything, we started doing the show, me, Trey and Mike in my basement. We had been in the studio together. So they let us stay together because we had already been together a lot in my basement. And one day before that started, we left the house and we let the engineers and people come in and bring the cameras and set up the cameras and all the equipment. And then they text us on how to use it all. So we were actually, the text kind of, if, listen, if, if shit ever went wrong, if it went down, we were screwed because all we knew how is to flip it on and flip it off. But luckily it all worked out. So we were the only ones down there. And the last show, I didn't even tell ESPN because I, I didn't know if they were going to want me to do it or not or let me do it or not. I wasn't going to ask. It was the last day on the show, so I didn't care. 
But I, the only person I told was Trey. I said, Trey, the last hour of the show, I want it to be just me and my family. You know, this, this started again in 98 when we moved to ESPN. Mike was 10, Jake was nine, and Sydney was six. When it ended, Mike was 31, Jake was 30, and Sydney was 26. So, I mean, it, it was a long time through there growing up, and they were part of it. So I said, Trey, I just want my family there. And at this point, it had grown a little bit. Jake's wife, Jenny, was there. And Sydney's fiance, Ben Broniker, who was then a tight end for the Bears, was there. And he was, he was like, fine, no problem at all. But one other thing that happened, Trey came back at 930 because Herm Edwards, who we are great friends with, was also a very, very good friend of Trey. They worked for years together on NFL Live. And Trey wanted to come on and say goodbye to, to – to, um, or Herm wanted to come on to say goodbye to Trey. Now, Herm was in Arizona. So 9.30 to him was 6.30 out in Arizona. So my family was on the first half hour. Uh, Trey came back on for that 15 minutes with Herm. And then the last 15 minutes was just me and my family again. And I was prepared basically for the last two minutes to just kind of look at the camera and address all the listeners and viewers over the last couple of decades and tell them how appreciative I was. And then Mike started his... Thing. I did not know that was coming. He told the rest of the family he was going to do that. My wife, who cries at a, you know, a good phone commercial, she was done. That caught me, so it choked me up. Everybody else was getting choked up. And when he finished, there was basically, as you guys know, anybody who in the business, a hard out's a hard out. I had 30 seconds after that to where there was a hard out. And now I'm choked up because of what Mike said. I'm looking at my family. And they're all teared up and I can barely get any words out. I think the only thing out I got out was thank you and a wave to the camera before I was done. So, but I was really happy it ended that way because I'm a uh, family is first to me, no matter what. And my family was incorporated through all the years of the show. So to me, it was only natural that the last day they were going to be part of the show. Awesome. I was listening to an actually a podcast last year, I believe, and you were kind of sparring with your wife about Sydney, you know, had just got engaged to Ben and the wedding cost was a big point of contention. And you were like, just, you know, don't tell me, I don't want to know. I'm just curious. Sydney, I, I believe is, can be a little high maintenance from your own. No. <laughs> what is that? How uh, involved are you are in that process? And are you cool with, what do you think of the name Bronnecker? Are you, are you, it, good with that name or well listen you know there's no choice in that matter so I have to be um Ben is a great guy I mean my god Harvard grad played four years in the NFL had a couple of concussions so I think like someone like me I would have just gone back and then played Ben is getting ready to take the MCATs to go to med school so this dude's got it going on you know he's either going to be an infectious disease uh doctor or a neurologist so he is so out of the, the, the level of our, our family's knowledge and its smartness that, and he treats Sydney so well. So great, great guy. So yes, I'm fine with Broniker, more fine with Broniker than I am with the money being spent on this wedding. I am involved just enough. They ask me my opinion. They don't really care about my opinion, but they ask me my opinion to make it look like I'm involved, but they don't care what I say and they don't listen to what I say. And I just pay, and I don't even sign the checks. Hell, if I went into our bank and signed my name, they would think it was a forgery. My wife's been signing the checks for since we've been married. So I'm, I'm just, the, I'm, I'm the, the conduit here. I'm the, 
I'm the cash flow uh, to this party next April uh, in, in Scottsdale. So even though I'm in New York, Mike, I'm a Philly boy. Was raised, born, did the whole Philly thing. And I remember those Philly teams. Man, those were some crazy personalities. Let's start with what it was like playing at the toilet that was the vet. What was it actually like? Well, it was. It was a toilet. It was, it was by far the worst turf I ever played on in my life. You could stand on that turf, not move stand for the duration of a game and your back would be stiff after the game. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but, but it was, it got to be known out there. Every team that played in the vet filed a grievance with the NFL and the NFLPA because it, they just wanted to file a grievance in case there was an injury. Wendell Davis from the bears jumped up for a pass and came down, didn't touch anybody except the turf and blew out both his menis meniscus on, on both of his knees. It was horrific. It was carpet over, concrete and then some metal where the pitching mound would come up you know when the when the Phillies played we shared a locker room with the Phillies we shared the, the shower area in the bathroom and the sauna with the Phillies so this is back with Dalton and Cruck and these guys who you know it was let me tell you first time I met John Cruck was was at a, a bowling fundraiser oh my god it got going it got pretty pretty it got pretty live but uh that that, that vet was horrific and anybody would have loved to push the plunger on that when they blew that sucker up because it was horrible. But those were by far my best years in the league, without question, as far as the city, which is a great sports city, and the teammates that I had. That defense had some incredible personalities. Give me some fun stories about behind-the-scenes stuff with those guys. Well, well, I remember as first when I went there, I remember I got cut on a Tuesday uh, by the Oilers and about three or four teams called. And that Thursday, the first trip I was going to take was to Philadelphia. And I was going to take more trips. And Buddy Ryan obviously was a coach. And I knew he was a defensive guy. And I met with him. And, and I knew, you know, Jerome Brown's there and, and Clyde Simmons and Mike Pitts and, you know, Reg, obviously Reggie White and, and the, the, uh, from the line, let alone the front seven and the DBs. And I said, you know, I knew they were the stars. And I knew what this is. This is where I wanted to play. So I canceled all the other trips and I said, let's, I just want to play for these guys. And I remember getting ready for the first practice. And during the practice, this is back when you wore pads every two, every Wednesday and Thursday, and you actually hit. It's a little different now. And I'm not saying it in a way that says these guys don't hit enough. I'm saying it in a way these guys are lucky now. <laughs> it's awesome that they get taken care of a little better. We didn't. We hit Wednesday and Thursday. And if we lost the previous week, we put pads on on Friday as well. Well, the first practice, there was going to be nine on seven, which was a, which is a running drill. And it's a tackling drill. It is, a, it is supposed to be a live drill. Now, it's during the season. So while it's live on the line, you're not supposed to tackle the running back. They call it thud. Well, I had known about Buddy. Buddy was a tough coach. And Buddy wanted you, A, to be very physical and kind of be a, kind of be a, a jerk, which I was anyway, because while I had some athletic ability, I had to make up for it by being really smart in knowing game plans and then kind of being, you know, pushing the envelope a little bit. So with Buddy, I knew you, you knew you had to do that. So the first nine on seven drill, the first time I got in there, I made the play and I and the running back wasn't expected. It wasn't their fault. I destroyed them. They were not expecting to get tackled and I tackled them. And I mean, I drilled them because he wasn't expecting it. Was it cheap? Hell yeah, it was. But I knew Buddy would love it. O-line came over, started fighting. I started swinging. Everybody was swinging. 
And somebody had told me after that said, buddy loved you after that. And I was like, I always knew how to please the teachers, you know, in school. I knew what to do to please the coaches. Plus that kind of played into my game anyway. And a funny story, the running back was Keith Byers. And when I, as a free agent, went to Miami, Keith Byers went that year and Keith Jackson, the tight end went as well. And so we got in the same situation in Miami and it was the first nine on seven. And I looked at Keith Byers, who was a running back. And I said, Keith, I said, you know what I'm going to do? He's like, yeah, he went out and made a younger running back come in there. And I did the same thing. Let me just say Don Shula didn't like it. Don Shula wanted to find me for doing that. So it was a different circumstance. But going back to what you asked, playing with those guys and just the, the amount of A personalities on that team and greatness of play was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Probably one of the best – listen, Reggie White was the best D-lineman I've ever seen play. Jerome was probably the quickest off the snap. Uh, Clyde Simmons was so underrated with his pass rushing ability. But the guy who really did it all was a great linebacker, great leader, was Seth Joyner. Seth Joyner, I mean, his ability of, of what he would do watching film, picking up things on film, taking it to the field, being a leader, was incredible. And then the Eric Allens of the world and the Andre Waters of West Hopkins. Man, it was a lot of fun playing with those guys. Mike, what kind of guy were you in, in the locker room with all those alphas? Obviously, you have a, a strong voice and a lot to say. What, what, what did you Were you able to kind of uh, get your voice heard in that locker room? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, nobody – I wasn't afraid to speak up. You know, every, every you, know, you like anywhere else, whether it's a workplace or a locker room, you have to earn your respect, and you're basically earning that respect by your play. Was I as, as talented as those guys? Hell no. Was I as good as those guys? Hell no. But – I got about everything I could out of my ability and, and players recognize that the eye in the sky doesn't lie about what you're out there, what you're doing and how you're playing. So you earn respect. You don't have to be the best player or the top three player on the team to be respected. You know, it's how you carry yourself. Are you a team guy, team come first? Are you getting everything out of your ability type thing? So I never had a problem speaking up in the locker room if I felt something needed to be said. But uh, boy, oh boy, there was, <laughs> it was, uh, there was some fun, fun locker. People have always wanted me to write a book. I said, there's no chance I'll write a book. I'm, I'm that locker room guy, you know, what, what, uh, what goes on a lot of times in a locker room. I, again, nothing bad, nobody getting hurt or anything like that, but I, I'll, I'll keep it in the locker room. The incredible thing about Reggie is here's this beast on the field, but yet the guy was a reverend, a preacher off the field. How would that materialize inside of the locker room? Well, nicest guy in the world. Um, and, and he never cussed. And he didn't care if you cussed, but don't cuss at him. Like there was an old lineman in a preseason game against Detroit that cussed at him one time. And it was a preseason game, so it didn't count. And this dude started cussing at Reggie, and Reggie lost his mind. So the next play, we literally, the rest of us on the D-line, when the offensive line came out, we told them, said, listen, I'm not doing a damn thing on this play. I'm going to watch what Reggie does to your guy over there. And they, and they said, we are too. <laughs> so, I mean, we basically just brother-in-lawed with each other. And Reggie took this tackle and planted him right in the quarterback's lap. And, I mean, he, he, yeah, you, just, you knew not to cuss at Reggie. Reggie was, was genuine. Reggie was just a phenomenal guy and probably one of the most freakish athletes I'd seen. He'd bench press, he would power clean, and he'd squat. Those are basically his, his three lifts, all power lifts. So, you know, a lot of times they say, boy, when you're a great athlete, it makes up if you're not very strong. 
or if you're a really good athlete, it may make up for if you're not fast. This dude was 310. I watched him run a 4640, and I watched him be the top bencher and strength guy on our team every year and then go on the field and do what he did. It was stunning, whether it was on the tackle, the guard, the center. It didn't matter. I've, I've never seen a man that big move the way he moved and basically just kind of beat everybody he could and not just beat them. That, that, that highlight reel of him using his hump move, that the, the rip and then the club across, and he would literally send 320-pound offensive linemen flying through the air. It, it was just stunning. I've never seen somebody so big be so quick, so fast, and so good. To hear the way you describe this, I can only imagine the brotherhood that was built between you guys. When you start seeing, obviously, the unfortunate early passings of Reggie, then Andre, and obviously Jerome, how does that personally impact you going through that? Well, that's tough because we did have a strong bond. And one of the reasons, remember, this was all before free agency. Free agency started in 93, again, thanks to Reggie and others, you know, put their name on, on what was going on. So we were all together without free agency. So you, you're there for the end of your contract or, or until you get cut, you know, and then with no ability to, to move anywhere else without free agency. So we were, we had a great core together for like five, six years. It was very difficult. I mean, because we were more than teammates. We were friends. I mean, I've always said when you, if you play for any amount of time and you can walk away with a handful of guys, you call friends, not just teammates, but friends. I think you're lucky. Now, that may be a little different today because a lot of guys stay in touch a lot more today where, you know, because you can with, with the way you can. But we were all we were all very close. We were friends before teammates like like most of us were. And so it, it, it struck us very hard. I mean, to see, you know, Jerome go down while we were all still playing, you know, in the car accident in the offseason was devastating. He and I were very, very close. And then obviously in Reggie and, and Andre Waters. I mean, it just it just player after player you saw and you're like, wow. I mean, it, it was it was difficult, uh, very difficult to all go away before the time uh, that, that they should have gone. Mike, I want to take it back even further. I know you're you know, Notre Dame legend, your whole family is basically royalty there, all three of your kids, student athletes. But I got to say, I went to a Notre Dame game about five years ago, and I was so underwhelmed by the atmosphere there. I don't know. It was granted it was it was winter break, but we went to the linebacker. We got looked out of that place. There was absolutely no tailgate. And it was kind of limp atmosphere in the uh, in the stadium, too, is, you know, do you have a, an answer to that or do you agree? What game was that for? Was that late in the season? Yeah, it was. It, I think it was around, um, like, must have been around winter break. So I don't know. I don't really remember, but uh, I remember being really kind of disappointed. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the the winter break, you may not may not have as many students there. The atmosphere there. Listen, it took them way too long to get artificial turf or the, the, the turf they have now. It took them way too long to get a video board. When you were there, did they have the video board yet? No, they didn't have the video. Yeah, board. I mean. For, for, and, and that had a lot to do with the older uh, alumni who didn't want it. And, and I'm glad that they should have got past that years ago. Because it, it, in all honesty, it is not the most electric and energetic stadium. When, I when my kids were playing and I would go to Michigan or Michigan State or, or USC and they'd have a board uh, or go to Clemson and they'd have the, the board and they'd be playing loud music and everybody would be getting into it like at Wisconsin or something. Man, that gets everything going. They didn't have that. 
for a while at, at, at Notre Dame. So I know what you're saying. And, and they only recently, it wasn't many years ago where they started playing music like on third downs, you know, and they killed the Ozzy Osbourne crazy train. I mean, that's all they play, you know, instead of playing other stuff. So it took them, it has taken them a while to get into the, the atmosphere, the energetic and a little more raucous atmosphere of today's game. Notre Dame's always been Notre Dame. The stadium's always been packed and they always did things a certain way but they needed to up their game as far as the electricity of the moment. Mike, we had Kenny Smith on recently, and he talked about the moment that he knew that inside the NBA had become something. What was the moment for you and Greeny where you knew Mike and Mike had crossed over the threshold into mainstream success? Probably when, you know, when, when we started, and we only started because, I, like I said, I first started with Tony Bruno, and we weren't even on a year, and Tony left. So I was like, oh, my God, I just moved my family from Arizona to Bristol, Connecticut. So aesthetically, there was a bit of a difference there. And now the guy I started the show with, the first national morning show ESPN ever had, was gone. And Tony and I got along great. But, but you know, and he had his reasons, and, and that's fine. So now it was like October of 99, and I'm looking for a new partner. So there were 13 candidates they brought in men and women they brought in as potential partners for me and some i knew within 20 minutes oh god this is going to be an awful four hours and others it was like okay we'll see where it goes greeny actually was a fill-in he wasn't even one of the candidates when some of the candidates couldn't be there he filled in and when he filled in we just kind of had chemistry so it started but i don't think there was a lot of thought that okay this wasn't the original morning show we had I don't think a lot of people were sure of what was going to happen. Now, this is back, you know, in 99 and 2000 when Greeny and I started. So a lot, we were only in, we weren't in many markets. Social media wasn't around. So in all honesty, we kind of had time to work through a lot of the elements that you work through as partners and as a show group. So because at that point, our bosses couldn't even listen to us. I don't even think it was cleared in Hartford. So you know, we, we could make the mistakes and learn from them. And I don't think a lot of people get to be able to do that today. It's like you're instantly not only in front of affiliates, but in front of, you know, Twitter and in front of podcasts, you know, everything is out there and you got to make an impression right away. So all of a sudden we started and then the ratings started going, picking up radio wise. And, and then they said, oh, you know, let's put you guys simulcast you on ESPN News. And but again, it was just do your radio show. The cameras will shoot around you. So they threw us in this still a studio that was still in radio. And all of a sudden, those ratings picked up radio ratings and TV ratings. So I think the move that did it was they moved us actually to a TV studio. They said, still do the radio show, but you're going to move to a TV studio. and We're going to put you on ESPN, too. So that was kind of a sign that to them anyway, we were obviously creating and i know how it works a business we're creating enough revenue for them to have them keep upping it for us and move us along like this which which they did and, and so i think at that point we were kind of looking at each other going huh things things must be going pretty well for a show that started that we weren't even sure where it's going to go now all of a sudden we're, we're simulcast on espn2 from one of the big tv studios we're like okay and I think that was in like 2005, 2006. And it just kind of kept going from there. Then, you know, 11 appearances on David Letterman, a trip to the White House, you know, and all these perks that came were like, 
I mean, it was it was like a dream for a while. It was crazy. One of the surprising things I remember you saying in the wake of Mike and Mike ending was that you and Greeny never really had a friendship outside of the radio. You said you had very little in common, which is amazing considering, you know, you wrote a book together, 17 years in a room together. Would you have preferred a friendship outside of the show or do you think that business relationship was a key to the longevity? I, it, it, what was interesting is, is Greeny, he co-hosted on Regis and Kelly or what, I, I forgot what it was at that time. But he filled in on that show. And I remember him saying one time, he said, it's amazing. He said, you don't show up there till almost like a half hour before the show. And you don't really talk to the person you're going on air with. So everything you say on air is kind of new. Nothing has been discussed previously. So it's all kind of initial and new reaction. You know, so we kind of like that. And us not being, you know, the word friendship, we were friends but we weren't hangout friends and, but geography took care of that and timing in life. You know, when, when Greeny and I started, he had no kids. I had three kids. Uh, he lived an hour and a half away from me. So we, we had, we had different likes and we had, we had an hour and a half in between us and we were at different points in our life. So there was no real, Hey, let's get together here or there because you know, we had the kids, they didn't have kids yet. Both the kids were born during the show. Uh, in fact, some of the shows way back when, when you had to wear a beeper, <laughs> uh, a pager, you know, if, if uh, his wife was going to go into labor. So that really was the reason for it. We only saw each other when we came in an hour or so before the show. And it would get to the point where we would just kind of discuss life and not really much of the show. So it would all, Greeny's line would all, if we started getting into a topic, he would always be save it, save it, save it. So the first initial time we would say it to one another would be on air and we'd get the genuine reaction from each other and I think that worked pretty good but you know I don't know if that friendship thing got blown out of proportion you know how people deem friends that hang out geographically it wasn't going to happen and where we were in lives you know he's younger than I am and like I said didn't start having kids till later so we, we just weren't in the same spots that drew us to hang out together. Yeah, it's amazing because when you guys were at the end of that term, page six starts getting involved and they always love the turmoil in any show oh, in yeah. the cast. Do you, what's that like when all that's happening? Page six is like, these guys aren't talking to each other. They like, what's going on? Well, I mean, at the end, it was, it didn't end well. I mean, that, that's, that's been documented, you know, of how it all ended. And I continue to say it wasn't my choice to end it. So I always say, talk to the people who ended it to get their story, but no, it, it didn't end great. It wasn't great between Green and I when it ended. Now, what I, what I didn't like on that was people within our show group were talking outside of it and telling the media these kind of things. And as I said, I've always been a, I've always been a locker room guy and I hate when that shit gets out, you know, let's deal with it, you know, within here, you know, not, not, not talk about it outside, but unfortunately that really didn't happen. But yeah, it was, it was tough. The one thing, I mean, I disagreed with the whole thing ending, but then kind of letting it out there that it was going to end basically a year and a half before it even ended. That's a long time to have to kind of work together when things hadn't ended that smoothly to, to go on and do a show. But we did, you know, you, you have to be professional about it. I can't say it was always great off air, but, you know, we both knew we had a show to do on air and we did our show as best we could on air. It's amazing because it's like, I think it was so, yeah, like you say, the definite friendship is, you know, expansive, but like you guys made it seem like you guys were incredible friends who you could just talk to. And 
you know, I think it's hard for people to understand that there's a performative aspect to it. Well, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, to, to, there, there, there is, but also we did get to know each other very well to the point, like I said, where we didn't like hang out every other day, but we were friend friendly or had a friendship enough to know a lot about each other's lives. Listen, you do a four hour show. There's a lot of breaks. We travel to do shows all the time. We're on a plane together an awful lot. There's a ton of talking about each other's lives. I got to know his parents, you know, extremely well. He got to, to meet mine, you know, as well. Uh, so we, we got to know, you know, each other's families. So, you know, when we were going to Cleveland, both my brothers would come on the show and he, got, you know, got to know them very well. So we did get to know each other very well. So I don't think it was ever a performance because we were very aware of each other's lives, you know, the good and the bad in each other's lives, because we spent so much time together talking about it and getting to know one another. Mike, you've obviously experienced a range of interview highs and lows from talking to Bill, Bill Belichick dressed up as him to that <laughs> Ronda Rousey interview that went viral a couple of years ago after she gave yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, that was a seemingly innocent question, by the way. But is there a sports figure whose interaction did not go as as anticipated, whether it's negative or positive? There, there was there was one, and and I, I won't say his name. It was a, but it was a football guy, a, a great football player, and and we all know how this works. You know, when you come on, especially if you're pushing something, especially around Super Bowl time or whatever, you talk football, and then you you're given time to talk about whatever product that you're pushing. We all know it. We've all gone through it. I've been, well, you guys, I'm sure, have been on both sides of it. You get how the game works. Well, this guy came on, I think it was pretty sure it was Super Bowl week. And we would ask him about football, and he'd say, I'm not here to talk about football. I'm here to talk about X, whatever his product was. And we're like, no, no, we'll give you plenty of time to talk about it. But hey, you know, about this team or that team. No, I'm not, I'm not talking football. I'm only talking. We're like, we gave him like two or three chances to say, so we get it. You know, you're, you're going to be able to pub your product, but let's talk some football. And he wouldn't do it. So we just hung up. We said, all right, see you, man. Didn't, didn't publish nothing. I was, it blew my mind because this is a guy who should know. I mean, knows exactly how it works. I can't believe Tom Brady did, would do that. Uh, yeah, what was it? <laughs> was not Tom. We never had Tom on our show. Terrell Owens, I, I had actually one time in studio. We kind of went at it a little bit. Uh, that that was one I, I do remember. Other than that, I mean, they they've all been, you know, like anything else, some good, some bad, but but never out of those couple that really make me go, yeah, I remember that because they were really bad. Or or I mean, in all honesty, I, I think many people would say Barkley is one of the best interviews you could do because that dude's just going to say whatever he wants to say. So he he's always been a, been a great interview. And I think they we figured out one time we we did over nineteen thousand interviews which is crazy, crazy to think about, about all the people we talk to about, you know, some you remember more than others, though. It, there's nothing worse than the shit interview. We talk about it all the time. And I've been doing this for almost a decade, especially someone you love or look up to. And then you get the shit can interview and you're just like, this sucks. Well, and the thing about it is, you know, it a minute in, you know, at 30 seconds in, or even not, not that even, even if it's not someone you look, look up to, even if it's a, player on a team or somebody for a story that you haven't had on before and all of a sudden they're just awful and you're like okay we got to try and make something try and try and get it out of them any way you can you're working your ass off trying to get any information out of them but at some point you just got to cut bait you know you just can't let it go too long especially and especially nowadays in twitter how quick it comes on twitter 
man, get this guy off the air. I don't understand what he's saying. This guy's horrible. It's just, it's amazing. But yeah, you go through a lot of those, no doubt about it. I want to talk to you because we're just experiencing the final four right now. And there was that amazing moment this weekend with Jalen Suggs, obviously. What did you think of that whole moment? Well, you know what impressive to me is they never stopped, right? They never stopped after the great, uh, you know, uh, a basket by by UCLA, the follow-up, you know, the miss, and then getting your own rebound and putting it in. I mean, Suggs was immediately breaking across, wanting the ball, knowing exactly the time he had. So instead of going, oh, shit, I can't believe that just happened, here we go to another overtime, this dude just kept going. The inbounder just got on the ball, saw him break it, and he just took off. So that was the first thing that was impressive to me. After that, you know, people are going to call it a lucky shot. Some people say it's not a lucky shot. Listen, these are all shots these guys work on, but I'm sure you don't call bank, you know, at that point. But being in that position and, and throwing that up and up in practice or, or even messing around, you have an idea of how you want to shoot it. And probably you're so amped up, I'm sure, is the reason that it hit the backboard. He probably had more oomph than he wanted into it because his adrenaline was pushing so much. But luckily, it was right on line, so it could go off the backboard and in. So, what I mean, it's one of those moments that will go down in history. As, you know, you have the chance, you have the ball in your hand. I mean, who? that's the, the most beautiful thing about it is, again, 99.9% .9 of the population will never, ever experience it like that unless you're out in your own backyard counting down your own shot and shooting it, right? He did it for friggin' real. I mean, it blows my mind, but, but that's what started it for me. There was zero hesitation by him when UCLA made the basket and he was ready to go. There was also a great moment, and it's a video that's gone viral. Adam Morrison, the great Gonzaga player. Yeah. As a broadcaster, did you ever, ever have a moment like Adam Morrison where you got to call your dream play? I, I never have. I, I'm, I'm pretty... I can get pretty animated in the booth. When I see something coming, I'll usually start to say it and start yelling and probably tick off my play-by-play -play guy, you know, because I'll see, I'll see the route. I'll see what's developing and I'll see the quarterback and I'll be like, Oh, it's a touchdown. It's a touchdown. And the quarterback hasn't even thrown the ball yet. You know, I'm probably, like I said, I'm probably ticking off the play-by-play -play guy, but, but I really, I kind of get going. But, you know, I've called a few Notre Dame games in my career. That would probably be it for me. Neither game, both of them were blowouts that I called, but that would probably be a great call to be able to do that. I've had some last-second touchdown calls, which, again, I kind of go nuts for. But I guess if it were, if it were my alma mater, it would be, it would be pretty wild. Wow. Mike, I know you touched on this earlier with, the, you know, be yourself and take, take them inside the huddle, but – you know, you can consistently find different angles that and storylines that are below the surface. And there isn't really a curriculum for, for radio. So I'm curious how you sharpen your knives for the radio outside of sheer repetition and your obvious natural gift of the gab. Find that, just what you, you were alluded to, find the different angle. You know, now again, we were the first show usually in the morning for people. We're kind of what people are waking up to. So we're telling them the major news of what happened the night before. And we, all, we also know, you know, taking people behind the curtain a little bit for radio and morning drive time, basically it averages out to have, you have your, your set of listeners for basically 23 minutes. So you have to realize you have to redo a lot of your stories because you have a whole new audience, you know, every, every half hour or so. So you keep kind of going 
going over that. But you also have to find angles. And that to me is, you know, we would get to a break and we'd say, okay, we're covering this. Now we do need to keep covering this for the next group that is driving and listening, but we need to find a fresher angle. What's a different approach? And I think that's one of the, one of the best things that the immediate reaction of Twitter has brought. Because quite honestly, I'll have looked at Twitter and sometimes someone on Twitter, and I'll usually give them credit, will bring up some, a different angle. Or we as a show group, we'll be in a break. I'll say, okay, gang, or somebody else will say, all right, what's a different angle? Where else can we take this that nobody is going to go all day today? You know, what, what, what's a different route? What's the tentacle that we can go off on? So that, that's probably the biggest thing that what we would do. Now, again, it's national radio and TV. So a lot of times you're sticking to the top stories and you're skimming the treetops. You don't have to dive in and talk about middle relief and the third line of a, t- a hockey team and all that. You can keep it more, more general and bigger topic, but still to find different angles. And again, try and take people as a former athlete onto what the thought process is for uh, what's going on in the field. That's why I've always told my son in the booth, don't tell people what happened, tell them why it happened and show them why it happened. Don't they? They can see what happened. They can see it was a, it was a trap or it was a zone or it was an end run or it was an out route, but why did it succeed or why did it fail? Show them that. You know, so that's probably the biggest thing that I did from a radio standpoint is find the different angle. Notre Dame has such a storied football history. Who are the Mount Rushmore of Notre Dame football players? Yeah, uh, you're probably outside of, you know, a guy I got to know when I was 12 years old, Joe Montana. You know, he was there with my brother, Bob. You know, those guys were all just stars to me. You know, Montana and Ross Browner and Willie Fry, you know, that team that won the the 77 national championship. But I mean, for the most part, you're probably going back in the day, you know, for most of the Heisman trophy winners are back in the day. You do have Tim Brown, you know, could certainly be there, but Montana would certainly have to be on there. And then, then I I think from that point, I mean, there, there were, you know, there were certainly some great players of the last few decades, but I think for the most part, you're going to go into names that people aren't really going to know who don't, follow Notre Dame though if you're a football fan you would know a lot of these names but that's probably where you're going to go for Notre Dame it's, it's probably going to be more old school hell the last title there was 88 the long ass time ago you know it's it, it, I know that we've been close one year I sat there hoping it would happen when both my kids were on the team except for the shellacking of Alabama in 2012 but I, I still think the most the, the biggest names of Notre Dame history are going to be those names from the yesteryear there's such a conversation right now, Mike, about college basketball, football getting paid. What are your thoughts on the issue? Well, I, I never, I never agreed with like the schools paying them because now you're talking about them. Are they becoming employees? What does that do? You know, that opens a whole other can of worms. The NIL, the uh, uh, name, image, and likeness, I do like. That way, somebody else is paying it. The school isn't paying it, so somebody else can put the bill for it. And I know it could lead, as people have said, to so many other things. It could make things unbalanced. Tell me they're not that way right now. Name me after Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson. Go. I mean, you're probably going to name 10, 11, 12 teams that are in the alt next, and then a whole nother group. We're already there. We're already in the we're, – we're very, very top-heavy right now. So, you know, especially now, I just saw a great story. I think these were two young ladies. I want to say Fresno State, but I'm not positive. They're sisters on the basketball team. 
and they like have millions of followers and they're on the whole TikTok generation. They could be making, they estimated hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they, and they even said, we're not, we're not good enough to go pro. You know, this is a chance for us right now where we could make some money. Cause a lot of people sit there and think it'll only be the Trevor Lawrence's of the world. Well, not true. These, these again, these, these five foot six sisters, I believe at Fresno state basketball players, good basketball players, but as I said, not going to the pros, they would be making collectively. They said the one group that figured it out as much as Trevor Lawrence could be making. So why not let these, let these players, these men and women make some money off of that. Everybody else can who are in college, if they have the ability to, why not let them, the school's not paying for it. So, cause that's the first thing I'll hear is that the school's paying, well, then we got to drop more uh, sports, which sucks. I hate. And, you know, let's give everybody a chance, you know, to, to use name, you know, image and likeness to try and make a buck. Some will make way more than others, but man, give them the opportunity to make it. I, I'm all for it. Mike, before we let you go, one of the goals of this podcast is to talk to successful people like you and figure out the habits and personal mantras that keep you elevating in your professional and personal lives. Can you share some words to live by, especially now that you're at a professional crossroads? I would say, you know, and it's weird for me because early on it was like my thought process was, and it's like my son Mike goes through now, I would tell people early on in their careers, dip your finger in a lot of different things, try different things. You know, if you're asked to try something, give it a shot, whether it's radio, TV, digital, podcasting, blogging, you know, something along those lines. Give it all a try. It was kind of like sports when I grew up. And I know it's changed some. I, I, there wasn't a seasoning in by. I wasn't in a different sport. And I know that's gone by the wayside a little bit because because young men and women, I think, unfortunately, are going to one sport too quick is try the different sports. 85% of last year's NFL draft picks were multi-sport athletes in high school. So I, I think try different things. No matter, you know, if you're in this business, starting out, try different things. You know, now it's been different for me. I tried all those things. I worked seven days a week. I did all that. Now I'm in a fortunate spot where I can kind of pick and choose what I want to do. But I'm going to pick and choose. And this would be the other thing, again, depending on your situation, what are you comfortable doing? And I don't mean you, you can't feel uncomfortable with trying something new. I, I get it. But now be comfortable. Never, never do something that you, if it's a little thing in your head that says, you know what, I don't know if I should do this or I don't know if this is the right way to go. Chances are it's probably not. If you're already telling yourself it's not. So be true to who you are. Be yourself. I'll never stop saying that. Try different things. Try many things until you find the one or two things that you really think you're going to flow into. But other than that, man, give it all a try. Do not be afraid to put yourself out there. My final question, Mike, you and Greeny both have fabulous heads of hair. Let's say you're at the prime of Mike and Mike, but you started losing your hair. Does Mike Golick get a hair transplant? No, no. I'm, I'm one of those that no matter what's going to happen, is going to happen. Like I have the salt and pepper now and it'll eventually turn white. I'll never color my hair. I'll never color my beard. And if I was going bald, and unfortunately, this strikes home to my son, Mike, who's 31 years old and going bald. No, I'm just, I would just let it, he'll like, just like he's letting it go. I would just let it go. I, I would not do transplant. No. And then that's not say If people want to do it, they go ahead. You're perfect just the way you are, Michael. I had one. I admit it. I had one. <laughs> that's okay. If, if you wanted to do it, no, no problem. But as I said, I'm going for the Dosecki's man look and then the Moses look. So Arthur paid 10 grand to wear a hat. 
Dude, you got to get your money back. <laughs> but you know what? I'm a single guy. When I go on dates, I rock the head and I look younger. <laughs> if it works for you, man, then it was all worth it, right? Mike, you've been an absolute joy, man. You're an A-plus guest. Welcome back anytime. All right. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. You've been a joy. Yeah. Thanks, man. All right, folks, that was Mike Golick. I got to admit, Matt, I was completely fanboying over Golick. And one of the coolest things about this dude was as we were booking him, usually when we're doing bookings, we've got to deal with the publicists, the managers, the networks. I was emailing back and forth one-on-one with Mike Golick. That was so freaking cool. And he signs every email as Golick. I was like, this guy, he's just the best. And he alluded to what his next steps will be. He didn't really give us the details, so I'm really excited to see what happens next for Mike Golick. Yeah, and that's a, that is such a great little uh, behind the curtains insight. You just going back and forth with Mike Golick when you know he could probably have a, an intern or something respond to us. But Golick, I think a lot of people don't realize how just incredibly difficult it is to just talk about sports and always like. And he mentioned in that always kind of find taking you into the huddle and finding a different. Uh, perspective on the same topic and he has done that brilliantly and you know we as podcasters we try to look at the same thing we try to take something everybody knows and find a back door into it so it was great picking his brain and and he is welcome back anytime in my estimation yeah and it was also fascinating getting into the details of the end of Mike and Mike the last day he spent with his family because that went viral and was trending number one on Twitter the relationship that he had both in the past, as well as currently with Mike Greenberg. It was incredible because I'm a page six fanatic. So reading about what was going on at the end from page six, but then hearing from him what actually happened and what their relationship was like, hearing it from the horse's mouth was just, it it, it was enlightening. And it just tells you that no matter how much of an icon or pioneer you are, everything must come to an end. And for him, it, Mike and Mike came to an end, and now it's on to the next step. So good luck, Mike. And as, as Matt had mentioned, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you just for an incredibly candid interview. Our next guest, we had mentioned this at the top of the segment, is a wrestling icon. Christian, now Christian Cage, became one of the most beloved wrestlers in WWE history, has now made a triumphant comeback after seven years to All Elite Wrestling. And heartwarming story, Matt. Think about you think your career is over and you after seven years finally get to do it again what that must be like yeah you can hear it in his voice it sounds like he's got a second lease on life I don't think he expected this and now he's in AEW which is exploding and really gaining the respect of of the wrestling world so you can see that he is he's determined not to just phone it in when he gets in the ring he's going to try to you know revive the Christian Cage that you know got him to be one of the most popular figures in the sport Forget about reviving. This guy's in better shape at 47 years old than most 20-something-year-olds. He tells us, guys, and I don't want to spoil too much, but he tells us what his last meal was when he still had his dad body or whatever version of dad body you have when you're in that elite shape before he went into serious training for AEW. But when you look at the guy now, he's got like a six-pack. He's jacked. He's in incredible shape. Christian Cage did not come back to F around. He came back to be just a dominant force in AEW. And you'd said it perfectly, Matt. He sees this as a second lease 
on life. God bless him, man. Super inspiring interview with this guy. And I love talking about his past with the WWE, his present with AEW, his legacy, the fun moments. The guys lived an incredible life and we dug into it all. So without further ado, guys, here is AEW's Christian Cage. Big day on the Endless Hustle today as we invite on former world heavyweight champion and recent all elite wrestling signing, Mr. Christian Cage. Christian, thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate you uh, wanting me to come on. Well, of course, you know, this is, you're all up in the news now because, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the return at 47, you're, you're redefining uh, kind of success late in the age. I mean, you, your career has been, you know, successful by any metrics. You've probably made a boatload of money. You have a young daughter. Can you talk about the impetus for your return at age 47 and length of the contract and all that? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, uh, it was interesting. You said, you know, kind of, um, you know, making a comeback at 47. And I've always felt like your age, I mean, it's cliche to say your age is just a number, but I've honestly felt that in my life, how I approach it is, um, if you think young, if you act young and you do young things, you stay young. And that hit me one year when I went home uh, and I was home for like a day and I went to my niece's, um, she had like a music recital at school for Christmas or something like that. And I ran into somebody that was unrecognizable to me. And, but like I knew from my youth and in my head, I was like, oh, did, and I hate to sound mean here, but I was like, did they kind of give, give up? You know what I mean? Like, this is it for me. This is all there is. I don't know. And that was just like, that kind of scared me a little bit that to, to be able to just settle in your life, you know? And I was like, man, I don't think I could ever settle. Like, and that kind of just like, kind of set that, that, that thought process in my head that, oh, if you just keep thinking that you're young and doing young things and acting young and staying active and doing these things that I, I feel like it's your body and your mind is just a reflection of that of taking that with you and that's just kind of how I've tried to to go since then and that was like my early to mid 30s when when that happened so I don't know I've just always that's always been in the forefront of my mind just keep doing young things I don't know I, and when you thought your career was over mm -hmm. What was that like? Yeah, obviously it's scary, right? I mean, you, um, it's one of those things where I thought that I would get to the point where I had, at the time I had like two years left on my contract and I thought that I would get to the end of it and then assess where I was at. And I always said that I never brought a number or a date of when I would retire. I said I would retire when it wasn't fun anymore. And the minute I stopped having fun was the minute I would retire. And, um, but there's something to be said for when it's taken away from you and you don't have a choice in the matter. So when I heard that, it kind of made it easier in a sense that it was taken out of my hands and it was easier to accept saying, Hey, we're going to medically disqualify you. There's no way that we'll ever let you back in a ring again. So that for me just kind of made me say, okay, what's next? You know, what's the next chapter? What am I going to do after this? And I've always felt like I was capable of doing other things other than wrestling. Although it was my first love it's my, passion but i always felt like i was going to be capable of doing more in life than just being a wrestler so okay what's the next challenge and how do we how do i start that process i know the wwe hand, handled you with padded gloves due to your concussions but can you describe the hoops you had to jump through to get cleared medically and to get your body in the right place yeah so they were all, i mean it, it was I, I understand what where they were coming from on it and they had my best interest in mind 
when, when it happened. And I think that um, seven years ago when I was medically disqualified and told that I had to retire, I think that it was one of those things where there were still a lot of unknowns as far as concussions and things like that go. So I think they were, I'm not sure I had enough time in between testing to, to full, like, I mean, who, who knows if I had a full year just to rest and then went back and did those tests where I'd be instead of just agreeing with, okay, you're medically disqualified. You can't do this anymore. But I just, I kind of took it at face value. And uh, at that point in time, I felt I was closer to the finish line than I was to the start anyway. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just start it. I'm just starting this next chapter a lot sooner than I thought, or a couple of years sooner than I thought I was going to. So to kind of get back, I was, you know, I'd be lying if I said that when Edge came back at the Royal Rumble after his neck injury, completely different injuries, by the way. But when he came back at the Royal Rumble previous to this year's, and, um, you know, I was one of the very few that knew that he was coming back. And it just kind of, it did put a little bit of seed in my brain, like, okay, maybe. And I was like, oh, it's different injuries. But it put it in my head for a second. And then I kind of put it to the side and I didn't think about it again. Cause I had some other stuff on the table that, that I was working on. So, um, and then when the, the pandemic hit and, you know, I was doing the Fox, the backstage show on Fox and I was doing some other things and I'm doing a lot of appearances and things like that. And all that stuff dried up. It all went away because of the pandemic. Um, the, the backstage show got cut after a month or two into the, the pandemic and just WWE had called me to come in and do a couple things. Um, with Edge getting ready for his match with Randy Orton. And it ended, ended up, Edge legitimately got hurt in his match. And then to kind of finish telling that story, they they came up with the idea for the unsanctioned match, which is, um, you know, it was, I was at the Performance Center, so there were, you can use a lot of smoke and mirrors there with that sort of thing, as far as getting around the non-contact, because I was on the non-contact list and stuff like that. But they were still very, very cautious. And at that point in time, I was like, man, really? And then it kind of hit me right then and there, right? Because it was, I was like, I'm, I'm that fragile here that I can't get like touched and I, and I have to like jump through all these hoops and have to, it just, it didn't sit well with me. So I was like, man, I feel healthy and I feel good. I just don't understand why it's this extreme that I can't even get touched. And so I decided that I would go on my own to the University of South Florida here in Tampa and see a specialist. And just do it on my own. And that way, nobody knew I was doing it. And um, do all the tests, have some conversations with the, with the doctors. And if they told me that they thought that I could do it, then it opened doors. And if they said, nope, you should stay retired, then I was in no different position than I was when I woke up that morning. That's how I looked at it. And so I, that's what I did. I went and I did all the testing. And the doctor I sat with told me the, um, the test had advanced a lot since I had done it before. And he said the, all the results that I, that I had were all um, average or above average. There was nothing below average at all. And the physical testing was obviously good. And uh, at the end of the conversation, he's like, well, what are you looking to do with this? And I just told him, I was like, if there's, a, if there's a chance for me to go back and kind of rewrite the end of my story, as far as my wrestling career goes, I would like to do that. But if you're telling me to stay retired, then I obviously, my health is, is, uh, is paramount. And, uh, he said, I think you can do this. He goes, actually, I know you can do this. If you, if you, this is what you want, there's no reason at all why you can't do this. So that was a wow. So I kind of left there with, you know, it was like a surreal moment. So I left there, didn't really know how to grasp it or, or anything like that. And I called, I called uh, Edge right away and told him. And he was, uh, of course, ecstatic. And he's like, what? What's going on? Like, he just couldn't believe it either. And, and he's like, man, you, just, you can't write these kind of stories 
you know, happened to him, happened to me. It's like the, the stuff that happens in like movies, it, not in real life. From there, I decided that um, I would, I would get back in shape. You know, I was happily living a retired life, you know, pandemic hits and you know, you're just kind of hanging out. And uh, I've kind of said this before, like, you know, I always worked out and always trained and things like that because I enjoyed doing it. But I was also happily living the retired life of like, you know, in the evening, you walk past the pantry, hey, a box of Cheez-Its. Well, it's better than half a box of Cheez-Its. Well, a whole box of Cheez-Its is, will do the trick. So I would do that, you know, and it's like, so not that I was in, uh, I was in uh, terrible shape or anything like that, but like, I mean, if there's a dad bod pool party, I'd be like top three dad bods at the pool party. Right. So it was like, um, so I knew I had some, some work to do to get back in shape. So I, and, I, and in my head, I was like, I can't just go to either WWE or AEW and say, Hey, I'm cleared, give me a job and I'll get back in shape. The work had to start that second. I had to, to, to put the package together and then go say, Hey, if there's an opportunity for me, this is what you get. And uh, so that's what I did. That's that. Um, I, uh, from there, what drove up to, to edges place and he had a ring up there and I got in the ring only really, really only one day for about an hour just to get a feel for it. And obviously my body was sore from, from, you know, not being used to, to, to doing that sort of physical contact anymore, but, uh, I realized, okay, yeah, I really do need to get back in shape. So I came home and I might, was so I was solely focused on getting back into physical shape, not so much the, the in the ring part. I wanted to physically get back in shape. And I was, I was like, if I'm getting in the ring and training the same time working out, I risk, you know, getting banged up or hurt. And that's going to set the, the training back. And I just, I wanted to, to get my body dialed in first. And then I'd worry about the, the, I figured I'd have some time to get in the ring after. Um, so that's what I did. Um, I, I hired a nutrition company here in Tampa called nutrition solutions. And, um, they helped me get my diet on point. And uh, it was funny cause I thought I knew something about nutrition until I talked to them and they kind of showed me that it, it, the fad diets and all those sorts of things, they don't work. You, you have to be stick to a consistent diet. Um, and you need, you know, you need fats, protein, carbs, you need all these things, but you have to eat the, the proper amount. So like they, they would have my, my macronutrients kind of, uh, factored into every one of these meals, the exact amount that I needed. And, uh, it just, it was a game changer for me. I wish I discovered that 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, and then I went to the, they started to open the gyms back up here in Florida. And I went to the gym once with a mask on and I was just like, I can't do this, man. Like it was just, I was worried about people getting close to me. I was worried about people not wearing masks and like it was uncomfortable working out with a mask on. And I was just like, I was like, I felt I was just getting there to get in and get out. I wasn't there to, con I wasn't concentrating on, on, on the workout part. So I decided I built a little gym in my garage and this is like July of uh, July or August, July of um, last summer in, in Florida. So you can imagine how hot it is in that garage, but like, I love the heat. Like I loved going in there. And it just felt like a struggle, but a good struggle. Like it felt like I was really putting work in. And it was like, there was days that the heat was so unbearable in there, but it, I, I kind of started to challenge myself. Like it's kind of me against this heat. How do I stay out here and finish this workout? And like put myself and make it uncomfortable. But yet at the end of it, feel so satisfied that I was so uncomfortable, but, but I finished it and I worked hard and just drenched, you know, but it was like, um, there was something about the solitude of just going out there in the garage and knowing that I had a goal in mind and that nobody else knew there was just, there was, there was something about that that just motivated me every single morning when I woke up. When you're in the midst of the concussions, I'm originally from Philadelphia and I don't know if you've ever heard of Chris Tarion, but 
Yeah. He's yeah. a, a very yep. terrific hockey player, but career ended due to concussions. And he described right. what that experience was like. And mm. he couldn't even lay in his bedroom in a dark bedroom and not be in pain. What was it like for you when you're going through the midst of those concussions? It was more, you know, thankfully I didn't have any, um, I had a little bit of post concussion syndrome after a little bit, like, you know, I'd get headaches here and there, things like that, but nothing that was debilitating where I had to, you know, and I've heard those stories and, and obviously it's, it's scary stuff and stuff that, you know, should, should never be taken lightly, but thankfully I didn't have any of those kind of issues. It was more the frequency at the time of what I was getting, of how I was getting them. That was the, the part that I couldn't wrap my, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out. And it wasn't until I brought it to WWE's attention that I had been cleared and that they wanted to keep it quiet, keep it close to the vest. And they quietly sent me up to a specialist uh, in Pittsburgh at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And they put me through a really tough, uh, thorough testing up there. It was about five hours long. I saw three or four different specialists. Um, they put me through a full workout in the gym. And at the end of it all, the doctor came in. I was having a conversation with him. And he asked me um, when I was getting these at a seemingly kind of higher frequency. He said, were you anxious about it? Was it on your mind? Were you thinking about it every time you got in the ring? And I was like, I was. At the end, I was. And he said, I need you to stop worrying about concussions. And uh, he said, same thing as the doctor said here in, in Florida. He said, um, your test results were great. What we know now about it is if you're anxious about it, if you're thinking about it, if it's something that you're carrying with you when you get in the ring, you're making yourself more susceptible to getting a concussion. And I didn't even realize that before. That just kind of blew me away. And he said, I need, if you're, if you're going to do this, you need to step to those ropes and know that you are at no greater risk now than you ever were at any other point in your life of getting a concussion. Could you get one? Sure. But you're not at any greater risk. So you need to go in there and do what you did before without that on your mind. And that just, that's all I needed to hear. And it just, it just, I mean, every time I step through there, step through the ropes, it's, it's the last thing on my mind, to be honest. Would you know when you got one, would there be a, a bell ringing? How would you know? Well, there was a couple of times where I was just, you know, the, where I got knocked out and I was out. And, um, I still somehow finished the match. I guess I was on autopilot, I guess, just at a, on instinct that I don't like that. I've gone back a couple of times. I don't even remember the match. The last couple I didn't, that didn't happen. I just got rung and I could feel the, you know, I could see spinning and, and things like that, things like, uh, to that nature. But yeah. So, but I, th I do think honestly that the, the seven year layoff was, was obviously, um, a great amount of, uh, of rest and things like that. And there, there's, um, I think there's, you know, there is precautions and stuff that I will take at this point in time, be a little bit smarter with the things that, that, I, that I do in the ring. Kristen, I'm not sure if you've heard of the uh, Undertaker's recent comments saying the WWE's product has gone a little soft for his liking. Mm -hmm. I know you aren't too happy with the non-contact list, but, you know, given the Undertaker's extensive injuries, do you think his that assessment is accurate or just kind of a narrow-minded view of changing times? Well, I, I honestly can't give an opinion on it because I didn't, I didn't see the quote, but I didn't hear the context in which he said it. Like, I didn't hear the interview. So I, I don't want to give an assessment on something that I didn't, I didn't hear. Um, I do know a lot of, you know, these sites and things like that. You know, they love clickbait, right? So they'll take one snippet from an interview and they know that people are going to click on it. Uh, so I'd actually need to see the whole interview and see the context in which it was said or how it was said to, to make a full assessment on that. But um, I don't believe, um, you know, it, it, and I mean, the, the generation before mine could, could say the same thing. 
and before that, you know what I mean? It, it changes and it evolves. And, and, um, but I, I wouldn't, I, I personally wouldn't say that, that this, uh, this generation is soft. I want to switch gears and talk about the explosion of AEW because from day one to now, and I tell this to the AEW folks every time I talk to them, it is mind blowing to see what that organization has done and how it's blown up. To join this organization and to see the infrastructure that they've built, the fan involvement, they're trending number one on Twitter every week. Mm. And to think about that 10 years ago, there was this monopoly called the WWE, and now there really is a true competition in this this incredible league. Mind-blowing? Yeah, it is mind blowing, but I also think that AEW is doing it right, and I and I and I thought that from the start before I was even a part of the company when I watched it, you know. And I felt like when I was in TNA, which is now Impact Wrestling, years ago, some of the traps that they fell into were were trying to be too much like WWE instead of concentrating on being uh, an alternative or being something different. And I feel like AEW sticks in their own lane; they're not concerned about what what's happening with wwe or nxt or in those things there's a there's a there's a goal and uh like i said we, we stick in our lane and uh, and do our thing and i think that's what sets us apart speaking about one of those stars we spoke with darby allen about his his path to pro wrestling and he said that he never really grew up watching it has no desire to become in the wrestling fraternity and has obviously plenty of other interests what do you think about darby and this idea that you can become a star in the company without growing up with posters on your wall yeah, I mean, we've seen it before in the past with, with other pro wrestlers. Some, some people just kind of fall into it. I mean, if you look at a guy even like AJ Styles, he didn't grow up a diehard wrestling fan either. And it was, um, I mean, I think he watched it casually, but he wasn't, um, same thing, wasn't a guy that had posters up on his wall. And look at him, he's one of the most successful uh, performers of the last 10 years. So I think that once you get into it, as long as, uh, and the thing is I've, I've had minimal interaction with him at this point, but I have talked to him a couple of times and he's, he's a really nice kid. Uh, he's super talented. And I think that what sets him apart is, um, you know, he, he does his thing. He's not concerned about what anybody else is doing. And, um, but you can see the passion that he has in his matches and, uh, with what he brings to the table. And when he steps through those doors, he's hundred percent committed to, uh, to, to being an AEW uh, star. So, I mean, I, I don't think you need to grow up as a fan. Does it help? Maybe for some people it does. It, it did for me. I grew up a diehard wrestling fan. I was the kid with posters up on my wall, but uh, it doesn't happen that way for everybody. We were talking to Darby in great detail because he's kind of been pegged by AEW to be the next guy, to be that mm-hmm. face. You went through that with the WWE and it's so curious for me what is it like when you're told you're the guy? What is that conversation like? What's it like when the marketing machine's getting behind you? What's that whole process like? And now as a guy who's returned after seven years, how is it different? Yeah, I mean, well, that's, in WWE, I never was, you know, the guy. So I can't really speak on that. But I do, you know, I have been, you know, the world champion before. And I do understand the, the pressures of, uh, of being on top of the card and, and for that time being the face of a brand or the company. And, and um, some people handle that pressure well, others don't. And I think that he has the right kind of attitude, very much like Jeff Hardy, where seemingly nothing will bother him. And I think that you kind of have to have, um, in some instances, you have to have that, you know, let the, the water kind of roll off your back of things where they don't always go your way. Probably doesn't take it home with them like, like a lot of people do. Um, and dwell on it. And um, so I think that that has its advantages as well. I think that obviously now as well, like what has changed 
for me, is social media such a big presence now where it wasn't when I was, or was just starting to, when I retired, that's another, another element there of, of um, being a star. Is there a fear that the metric for success in the industry, given social media is kind of based on follower count instead of merits of being a wrestler? Because I mean, I know in the acting world, like that's kind of the rumor is that like, Oh, how many are we going to cast this person? Let's check their social following. So is that a, a problem in wrestling or? The- no, I, I don't think so. Uh, it doesn't seem to be at this point, at least not in my estimation. I don't think that, that that's uh, that's really a thing. I think it's it's based more on uh, on talent. I think that, that a lot of the, um, a lot of it's based on in ring talent at this point in time as well. Yeah, I don't think social media at this point is is a deciding factor on whether somebody becomes a top star or a top male or female wrestler at this point. What was it like getting back in the ring? I mean, that had to have been such a cathartic moment. And to win, talk to me all about it. Yeah, it was cool. You know, um, it was kind of, it was surreal. You know, when I first came back at the rumble, it was, it was a little bit different um, because it was obviously not a singles match. Um, I think it was a pretty good surprise, but it was nice to get in there and kind of, uh, you know, I thought I'd be nervous walking out for that. And I wasn't like, I just stood there at the, at the, at the curtain and I was, I was cool. I was like, man, I was born to do this. I mean, there's nothing to be nervous about other than the fact that I haven't been, I haven't wrestled a match in seven years, but other than that, there's nothing to be worried about. Hopefully it's like riding a bike. Um, but I went in there and feedback was, man, it looked like he didn't miss steps. So that gave me a lot of confidence. And to be honest with you before, uh, between rumble and when I debuted at revolution for, um, for AEW, uh, or about, uh, my, I had my first singles match with Frankie Kazarian on dynamite. Um, I'd only been in the ring two, maybe three times and I hadn't even wrestled a match. It was just kind of get in there to hit the ropes take some bumps. Um, we call them blow up drills, you know, kind of falling down and getting up, falling down, and getting up and um, just trying to get your wind back. Cause being in shape and being in ring shape are two completely different things. So uh, I just want to kind of get the feel for it and to see how my body would adjust to it. And I, fe- and I felt much better this time now that I was actually physically in shape than in the summertime when I was up at edges place and I was out of shape, like that was night and day, the recovery after. So I was really happy about how my body reacted to that, but, you know, getting, you know, having that first match, you know, obviously different times there in a perfect world, there would be a full house out there. And, but that's, that's not the world we live in right now. So, um, you know, and I didn't want to wait. I was, I, I thought was in my head too. At one point, it's like, do I just kind of wait it out and wait till the crowds are back? But who knows when that's going to be like, that could be two years from now. And I, at 47, I don't have that kind of time. So um, I decided that, you know, well, we'll just uh, whenever the, that moment got me back in there, that's what it would be. So, um, but I'm really happy and I was thrilled that my first opponent was Frankie Kazarian. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. I think he's a super talented guy. And uh, yeah, but waiting at that curtain as well, I was a little bit more nervous for that match than I was going out in the rumble. And uh, but once I stepped through, took a deep breath, I was good to go. I, I got through and I kissed the, I kissed the canvas. Cause it was like, uh, you know, like coming home and um, you know, kind of taken back what had been taken away from me seven years previous. And that was kind of a symbol of that. But um, once we locked up and got going, man, I, I, I felt great. I really did. I felt like it felt smooth to me and felt, um, I, I don't know. I, I felt really good in there. So no big game nerves, no shaking knees. It was like, I'm back. Nope. I'm back, baby. No, there was, a, I mean, obviously there's some nerves cause you want to, you want to do well. And um, I'm always my own worst critic. So like I said, there was a little bit of, a little bit of butterflies before I walked out, but as soon as, as soon as I stepped out there, it all went away. It all, it all comes back pretty quick. 
we mentioned social media a little bit and the internet age has kind of bulldozed the barrier between the performer and the fan. I mean, you must have fans and trolls reaching out to you all the time. Is there any fan mail or troll interaction that you comes to the front of your mind? No, I mean, the, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, you, you take the, 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 there, you know, there, there's, it's like anything, right. I mean, obviously there was uh, the, the positive feedback was great. Um, and always appreciate it, whether it's on social media, whether it's you're meeting somebody in person or whatever. I mean, it's great. And there's going to be people, it doesn't matter what you do. There's always going to be people that, that don't like you or like what you do. And I think especially on social media, there's a big pocket of people that just go on there to be negative and not even, not even in wrestling terms, but I mean, in, in anything, they, they go on there just to be negative. And maybe it's a, it's a reflection of that. They're not happy with their own life. So they feel better about lashing out and uh, being negative towards other people. But um, you know, I welcome all criticism, good or bad. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, I know what I'm capable of. I know what I can do. And um, like I said, that, that uh, you have to, you have to understand from, and I've understood this from the moment I started wrestling that there's, you're never going to please hundred percent of the people. There's always going to be people that aren't a fan and don't like you. You have to have thick skin and you can't worry about that. You just have to go out there and control what you can control. But how does the intro music process work? I know you debuted AEW with Evanescence, My Last Breath. Is your team contacting that band directly or is it a larger licensing deal? How involved are you in that process? Yeah, so when I first went to TNA in 2005, I had heard that song. And I was like, man, the intro on this is like badass. I'd love something like this for my, my intro. And from what I recall, they changed some of it. So it was similar but not exact so there's no issue as far as i know that that they that it can be used so i don't know whether they end up licensing something for it or not but i know that there was enough that changed that it was not considered a an issue from what from what i understand so it is a banger which wrestlers do you think has the best all-time intro music if you were to get name like three best intro music man um I think Austin, obviously, with the glass breaking. I mean, people just come unglued when they hear that glass break. Um, I always love Bret Hart's ring entrance music. And uh, I mean, come on, Flair, right? I mean, it's classic. Yeah, Flair. We, we had Booker T on the show a while ago, and he yeah. talked about great Flair stories. Yeah. Do you have any great Flair stories? Uh, man. Um, <laughs> that's kind of the reaction he gave too he's like what can i say what won't i say i honestly i honestly don't think i can say anything that hasn't been said already um actually when, when rick and i hang hang out we usually just hang out and talk really i mean it's pretty i, I wasn't around rick in in his heyday you know like booker was a little more around in, in the heyday um that wasn't the case for me um i sat there and heard him tell the stories so that was uh, that was kind of my experiences with Rick. Does he understand his place in history? I mean, the guy's mentioned in rap songs. He's meant a ton to the African-American. Here's this like blonde haired white guy yeah. who means so much to the African-American community. Does he have a grasp of his place in history? I think he, he does. But he's also like Rick is genuinely um, he's, he's a good person. And, and you know, he, he, he knows he's Ric Flair. And that's kind of the charm of him. You know, and he's 20, he's, he's Ric Flair 24 seven. And, uh, and I think that's why people gravitate to him. And that's why he's one of those guys that walks in the room. He has everybody's attention because he's Ric Flair and he's never not Ric Flair. So, 
Um, I think that's the appeal of him that he's just, he's just real in that sense that he, he is what he is and he there's, he's unapologetic. I want to switch gears for a second and talk about getting into character because we were talking to Brian Scalabrini. If you're a basketball fan, he played with the Celtics during their OA championship, played with Kevin Garnett, who's famous before game. He gets himself into a lather and just changes from one person to another. You mm-hmm. seem like this just straightforward, mild-mannered, kind of laid-back dude, and then you get out in the ring and you're an animal. How does that change over occur? What's your process? Uh, I've never had an issue just being myself. I'm, I'm 100% comfortable in my own skin. So it's like... Um, and it's funny because a lot of people may be like, oh, you're nothing like you, you see him on TV. It's like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, there's, and I was a shy kid growing up. I was super shy. And, um, I was the kid that was afraid to get asked a question in class because I had this real fear of speaking in front of people. Like it's, it terrified me. And I started to realize early on that the way to get over these fears were, was to not shy away from the things that scare you, but go after the things that scare you. So for me, speaking in front of people was terrifying. So I forced myself to do it. I started to stand up in front of the class and read a book. And even if I was just reading the book, but I wasn't looking at making eye contact, I was still up there. And then after I did that, I was like, okay, I got through that. I'm all right. Then I would like maybe next time look up a little bit and then look down until I was looking at people in the eyes and things like that. And that's how you, you to me, how you gain your confidence. But um, and wrestlers always can. And like when I watched wrestling, like I said, I was such a shy kid that wrestlers symbolized to me what I wished I could be, the confidence that I could have. And that's why I was so uh, attracted to wrestling and why it just had my attention from the get go, these larger than life um, characters. So I always wanted to, I wanted to, to be that. And, you know, for me, when I get into character, whether it's a promo or something, a lot of times I'll draw on real life things like, um, you know, things that make you happy, things that make you sad, things that make you angry. You try to, to, to tap into those when you're doing a promo or you're talking and try to get yourself where you need to be uh, at, at a mental uh, level to, to go out there and perform. And, but a lot of times too, and, it, and like it's a real test now when there's, uh, especially for, for, for a time when there was no crowd and, or a very limited crowd, you know, because a lot of times we, you know, we wait, we, we live for that instant reaction that you're going to get from the crowd. Like, you know, it's either, you know, a cheer or a boo or, or whatever it is, there's a reaction. And when you're not getting that, it's uh, you got to find other ways to, to, to channel um, your emotions in the right direction to, to get what you want out of the character. So, um, yeah, I think there's, there's many different ways. Like this, this past, uh, the first match back, it was just like, hey, to me, it was like just getting into where I wanted to be like, first of all, the hard work that I put in for almost a year, but also realizing that this just as easily could have never come back as it did as coming back did, you know what I mean? So don't take this for granted, go out there and um, enjoy every single second that you're in there, which is why I went in there and I kissed the ring and all those kinds of things, because, you know, like I said, like I, I want to enjoy every second of it this time and not take any of it for granted. Like maybe I, I would have in the past. Man, we also spoke to Booker T about celebrities from outside the wrestling world making cameos, you know, in events from Dennis Rodman, Carl Malone, Pat McAfee spoke very yeah. well. Is there a guy or girl you witnessed that did the sport justice in the ring and in the locker room behind the scenes? Yeah, um, I'm thinking of um, Stephen Amell, I thought did a great job of that. Uh, when he came in, you know, he, he um, did it. 
he's done a few matches, but he takes them very seriously. And he, you know, he's a huge fan. He did a couple of things on the edge and Christian show as well. Uh, really likable guy, nice guy, but also he's such a big fan that he, he didn't want to do an injustice to, to this, to the, to the industry or to, um, um, or to disrespect the wrestlers. And I, I really appreciated that about him. And now you see him actually doing a, a show. I think it's called heels. He's, he's, he's uh, doing a show. That's I'm not sure what channel it's going to be on, but um, uh, about wrestling and that shows you his passion that he has for it. Is that only because he's Canadian? Yeah, it's also because he's Canadian. So that's another reason why I like <laughs> Spe- Speaking of heels, when you started, you were a villain. Do you yeah. like being the villain or would you rather be the good guy? Well, I, I naturally have a pretty sarcastic uh, wit about me. So, um, and, and I'm also one of those guys where like, if I, if I figure out what buttons to push and I know something annoys you, I will push that button over and over and over and over again. And so I'll be like, Hey, what's the, what's the problem? You know, but it's, uh, um, so I, I mean, it's easier for me to be a heel. I think it's, it's easier for a lot of people, but, um, it's all obviously a lot of fun to do that as well, but um, you know, it's hard to get cheered legitimately cheered these days. And um, I think that with uh, the equity that I have in my, in my, my past, the things that I've done in the past and, you know, coming back from, from this, hopefully, you know, people will appreciate that. And um, you know, but there's always that little uh, voice in my head saying, you're not this nice of a guy. (laughs) (laughs) I've been literally looking at you. You look like, five different people that I can identify. Who do you get that you look like? All the time. Uh, I get um, uh, Dennis Quaid is who yep. I get the most. That's, that was my number and, one. Yeah. And I got a funny story about that. So I had, I, I had tore my pec and I was in um, Birmingham, Alabama um, having surgery. And then day or two after that, I was flying home and I'm in this sling and I was uncomfortable and in pain and I had this connection. So I was like, and I'm annoyed about that. I was just kind of sitting there and I'm, there was a lady sitting across from me and she's just staring at me and I'm kind of, I'm not looking up. I had a hat on like, a, now I'm kind of looking down and I kind of glanced up. And then when I glanced up, she goes, excuse me. I went, okay, here it goes. And she goes, um, has anybody ever told you that you look like Dennis Quaid? <laughs> and I, went, <laughs> I said, yes, actually. I said, I get that at least once a month. I get it all the time. I said, but I get Christian from WWE more. And then she kind of looks me up and down. She goes, yeah, I guess I can see that. <laughs> Tony Hawk on this show, and he's has the same problems. Like, you kind of look like Tony Hawk. It's like that's because I am Tony Hawk. Yeah. <laughs> so you're a better but, uh, man than I. I would have totally played that I was Dennis Quaid and been like, <laughs> "Do you want to take a picture?" And <laughs> yeah. Well, when I had long when I had long hair, they used to be like they would sometimes be like Jericho Edge, you know, like they would they would never sometimes they would get the three of us mixed up. So let's talk about your friendship with the edge. Okay. What has he meant to you? Well, I mean, he's, so when I moved to, we grew up in a town called Orangeville and I'd moved there from a smaller town called Grand Valley. And like I said, I was a shy kid. So I was really scared about going into the class and meeting people. And like, he was one of the first, one of the first kids that came up to me to talk. And um, we just kind of hit it off right away. We both realized from that moment on that we were both wrestling fans so that's kind of was our, our immediate connection was that we both were fans of wrestling and we just um, kind of hit it off from that. And, you know, Adam, like he grew up in a single uh, with a single mom and you know, she, there's oftentimes she was working two, three jobs to try to support them. And uh, so a lot of times when she'd be like working double shifts or whatever, 
you know, there, there's a lot of times where he was at my house and he was having dinner with my family and he was staying over for weekends and things like that. So it's, it's, he's more, it's, it's more of a brotherhood um, than a friendship, you know, and it's, and uh, he's a part of my family. He still talks to my parents. He still calls my parents and um, you know, he goes and visits them when he's back and things like that. So it's, it's more than a friendship and we really are a part of each other's lives. And we've had, you know, been through all the ups and downs together and, um, you know, always, um, had each other's backs no, no matter what. Yeah. The, the words can't really express how much it means to me. It, it, it's kind of like a, a friendship. That I think that every person wishes that they, they had, and I'm not sure everybody does, but everybody should have a friend like, like the friendship that we have. Was there a moment when you guys had both made it that you're looking at each other and you kind of dream back to the little kids, maybe saying, hey, we're going to be professional wrestlers one day. And then you're finally there and you kind of just laugh and you're like, holy shit, this actually happened. Yeah, I think it was maybe like like WrestleMania where we won the, the tag titles. It finally, it finally kicked in because we played that moment over and over in our heads um, a million times. You know, we were in the side yard and we'd make, um, you know, we'd go get like Bristol board, like gold Bristol board. And we'd, we'd get a stencil and we'd stencil world tag team champions. And then we'd take my dad's weightlifting belts and we'd take hockey tape and we tape it around the belts and we'd turn them around backwards. And like, that would be like our tag team titles. And, and you know, we would wrestle. I mean, I'm not saying this is don't do this at home. And, but we, you know, we were kids wrestling in the side yards and things like that. And uh, we took ourselves way too seriously as far as wrestling went. And Adam was a good artist. He would always draw pictures of us holding up these tag team championships and what our outfits were going to look like and what our tag team name was going to be and all these different things. And then, um, yeah, to, to, to kind of break in not long after each other. And then he got to WWE a little bit before I did. And then me finally getting there and then, you know, being put together in a group with the brood and then splitting off and becoming an edge and Christian. And then, you know, even before that first tag title, there were, there was talk about breaking us up and having us both go singles. And um, luckily we were talking about turning heel before we turned heel and it completely changed the, the, the perspective of us and uh, made them realize there's more in the tank as far as us as a team and together um, and more development they could go as far as characters and stuff like that. And then from that, you know, we weren't, weren't supposed to win that first tag, that, that tag team match at WrestleMania. We weren't supposed to win that match, but we changed their minds a week or two out with some of the promos and things like that we were doing. I think it was that moment we were standing on top, sitting on top of that bridge that we built across those ladders, holding up the, the, the titles. And then after we went back, like, this is crazy like we dreamed about this as kids and we're actually standing here holding these titles. Like, and that was funny too, because we were so like crazy about which title was, which like the one that he had had a little white mark on the leather. So even if you watch ever, ever watch matches back when the ref hands us our titles back, if we got handed the wrong one, if I look at mine, had the white, like the white smudge on it, you could see us swap the titles. Like that was his, and this one was mine, you know? So it was like, we even had which, which, actual title was who's so we had it done uh, down to a t that much i want to talk to you about finishing moves sure how do you develop the finishing move when do you make that decision and then the first time you land it yeah so for me because um i realized especially at that time i was not considered big at all and it was land of the giants when i first got the wwe i was i was considered on the smaller side even though i'm, I'm not small i'm about six one um, at that time I was probably about 210, 215 pounds when I first got in there, but it's like, you know, you're in there against guys that are six, 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 seven, 230, 240, 50, 60 pounds. So what I realized was, and, um, and uh, this is like, 
how becoming a student of the game helps. You know, I, I watched a lot of tape. I broke down a lot of tape and I was like, man, I want something different that nobody's really done. But I also need something that I could do to anybody on the card. So if I'm doing something where I'm picking somebody up, I mean, I'm not going to be able to do that to a guy like Mark Henry or the big show. I have to have something that believably I could hit on any single person and it would work. So obviously DDTs have been done so much and like things like that. And um, so I was just like I said, I was watching tapes and I, I kind of, I was watching um, some, um, some tapes from all Japan, I believe. And uh, there's a wrestler named Tommy Rogers, who was, uh, he was a tag team wrestler for years and he was wrestling in Japan and he used the move that I call the kill switch now, which was also known as the Imperator, but at the time it was called the Tamakaze. He used it in this match, but there was a couple of differences. One, he didn't use it as a finish. He just used it as a move in the match. And another time when he, when he grabbed the arms and he turned the guy around, when he, instead of, I just dropped almost kind of more like a, like a DDT um, to kind of get that sudden impact from it. When he turned the guy, he would take steps and kind of run and jump. So I couldn't figure out how he turned the arms around. I was like, how did, what, what, what just happened? Like, what did I just see? So I, I had a VCR, so I rewound it and I paused it and I did the frame by frame to see how he stuck his head in, took the arms and then spun and then spun the guy. So I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. But then from slowing it down that way, when he got turned here, in my mind, I went, if he just dropped there, it would look way more devastating and you could use it as a finish. So I went into, like I had a, a ring that I was training in. I just tried it on one of my friends and I can't remember somebody else was in there like, wow, that looked amazing did it again, did it again. I was like, okay, I'll never use this again on any show anywhere until I get to WWE. Because then you risk somebody seeing it and taking it from you and using it before you can use it yourself. So I was like, this is my move. And uh, so a year, year and a half passed and I never, and I had it in my back pocket and I ne legit never used it until uh, I wrestled, um, what was his name? Uh, Dick Togo was my first kind of, after I wrestled um, Taka Mishinoku and I beat him for the light heavyweight championship, my next match after that was against a guy named Dick Togo. And I used it on him for the first time. And I just remember seeing people's face in the crowd, like, like, what was that? So I was like, all right, I knew this was my move, but I had it, like I said, I had it, I had the move figured out a year, year and a half before I even got to WWE. I just didn't use it anywhere because I didn't want to want anybody to steal it. Oh my God. I love that people steal each other's finishing moves. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So um, before we let you out of here, one of the main reasons we started this podcast was to talk to successful people like yourself and figure out kind of the habits that allow you to continue to elevate. With this new AEW endeavor, what mantra are you living by to ensure continued success? Well, I think it's right there on my first T-shirt, Outwork Everyone. And um, that was my mindset going in is, uh, like I said, I don't want to take this for granted what's been uh, what's come back to me. That being said, I'm not coming back to do a greatest hits and just kind of rest on my laurels and, and um, kind of the name that I've built in the past and the matches that I've had just come out and kind of, you know, look for my peeps and do a couple um, moves that people recognize and then pack it in for the night. I'm, I'm here to do some of the best work that I've ever done. Um, and I'm here in AEW because I felt like they were going to give me the platform to do that. Um, I believe in AEW, the company. Uh, I believe in the direction they're going in. I believe in all the, the, the superstars uh, that, they, that we have on our roster. Um, I believe in all the wrestlers, all the talent. Um, I think there's a good mix of veterans and up and coming uh, stars. So 
um, I think we're set up really well for the future. And uh, like I said, for me, it was, it was to come in here and, and do, do that work. Like, like I said, outwork everyone and, and kind of take back those seven years that I lost and close this chapter the way that on my own terms and um, but do it in a, in a way where I'm also setting the bar for uh, the generation that's coming up. And if I can help them in any way, but say, Hey, even at 47, that work ethic, it can only help you uh, going forward. And, and um, even like I said, at a kind of a, an advanced age of 47 to have that work ethic to go in there and have the desire to put on 15, 20, 25, 30 minute matches uh, and hang with uh, these young guys. Um, I, I kind of want that to, I want that to resonate. Yeah, and AEW's got to be thrilled because they signed an A-lister like Dennis Quaid. So, you know. It's <laughs> yeah, always... true. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you can get a Hollywood movie started, no. Con- <laughs> congratulations, man. F- fantastic comeback story. I was blown away seeing what kind of shape you're in right now. As a, oh, I appreciate it. Thanks. I'm going to be 43, and these guys will tell you I work out, but my eating sucks, but I'm in pretty decent shape. And then I see your ass come out, and I'm like, what the fuck well, is wrong with me? <laughs> well, it was so the, the, the guy that, that runs Nutrition Solutions is a guy named Chris Cavallini. And the moment we talked, he said, you can't, you can't out-train a bad diet. He put that in my head right away. But it was funny, too, because I was not in a good place, like, mentally when I talked to him, you know. And he, like, we, I was driving when I was talking to him on the phone. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to have a day or two to kind of get in the right headspace to start this, like, this diet. And, like, all of a sudden, he's like, and she said, you're starting tonight. And I was like, tonight? He's like, yeah. He goes, I'm going to have everything set up for you. You're starting tonight. But I still and, get a uh, Cheez-Its in the cupboard. No, what, it was better than that because I was passing a five guys and I pulled over and I was like, I'm getting this double cheeseburger now. So that's where my head was at. I grabbed myself a nice uh, greasy double cheeseburger from five guys. And then I started my, uh, my diet that night. But you know what? It's consistency is the key. And he drilled that into my head as well. You know, if you stay consistent with it and you know what, if, you, if you're working hard at the end of the week, Reward yourself with a with a with a pizza or a, or a, or a, a cheeseburger or a hot dog or, or whatever it is that you like to indulge on. Um, but it's, it's actually once you get you into that headspace and you see positive change in your body, it's very easy to uh, to continue to do it. When you first saw the six pack come back, did you walk in and say to your wife, "Check this out"? Well, I'll tell you what, man. I never had. And here's the thing that changed my life: is planks. I'd never done planks before. And like, I plank every single day, no word of a lie for five minutes, not five minutes straight. I do a minute, 30 seconds off minute, 30 seconds off. But like I plank every single day and that changed like that. I've never, I don't think I've ever had abs ever in my life. I don't even know if I have now, but I know that, that like, that's the best that, that uh, I feel like my, that, that my, uh, that, that it's looked. So I don't know. I like to check them out. You know, we're looking forward to it. Christian, yeah. thank you for joining the podcast. Uh, you're amazing, and you're welcome back anytime. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to Good talk to you. Good luck with the comeback, man. Keep crushing it, bro. You guys too. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. All right, folks. After listening to that, if you are not a fan of All Elite Wrestling's Christian Cage, I don't know what to tell you. After seven years thinking he had his career taken away because of injury, to come back to this fanfare, to this excitement, and to this performance level, the dude is ready to rock. And it's great. At the very least, he can go out of it knowing on his terms. He can get that kind of goodbye parade that I think a lot of people at his esteem and prominence deserve. So at the very least, even if it's not as excellent and fulfilling as he might have hoped at the very least 
Christian Cage can go out on his own terms. Well, you just nailed him, Matt. Every athlete has an expiration date. Even Tom Brady, your boy Brady, will eventually have an expiration date. That remains to be seen, Arthur. <laughs> You're right. He find that knowing Brady might play till 86 years old. But that being said, it is so important for these athletes to be able to go out on their own terms. Father time is undefeated, but when you lose it because of injuries or because of unforeseen circumstances, I can't imagine a worse fate for an athlete. And for Christian, that's indeed what happened. So for him, being able to return to the Royal Rumble, then getting signed by All Elite Wrestling and winning his first match, it's got to be such an ecstatic and rewarding experience. And I love that we got the opportunity to talk with him right after that and understand what it really meant to him. Again, truly inspiring story. We have brought up that we spoke to him to other interviews since Christian that will be released at a later time, including Renee Paquette and CM Punk. And everybody's reaction was we're cheering for the guy. And you can just tell from other athletes what it means to see a fellow athlete be able to come back and finish your career on your own terms. So good luck, Christian. Thanks for coming on, man. And you're welcome back anytime. Just like Oleg is. We're reinviting people, friends of the show, Matt. I think we should stop saying you're welcome back anytime and then just start saying who isn't welcome back anytime. That right, be- right, right. We're like, hey, guys, please come back. And they're like, we may not want to come back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's it for another incredible episode of Endless Hustle. Matt, let's give them the plug so they can follow us. Cool. Subscribe to Endless Hustle wherever you listen to pods. Every bit counts. Subscribe. We need your support to keep this thing going and to talk to the best in the industry. Watch episodes on BroBible's YouTube channel and follow BroBible.com. We'll have editorials that correspond to these interviews. You can follow BroBible on social at BroBible on Twitter and Instagram at Endless Double Underscore Hustle on Twitter and at Endless Hustle Pod on Instagram. And you can follow me at Mr. Kohan, K-E-O-H-A-N on Twitter and on Instagram, but don't Twitter mainly. Arthur? I'm on Twitter at Arthur Cade, on Instagram at It's Me Arthur Cade. Endless Hustlers, thank you for listening and watching and supporting. We've got a great episode when we're back on Tuesday. Two great guests. We'll see you all then. Peace.